Hi, this is Ava. Elise is my mom. This week on the show, from NPR member station KPBS in San Diego, reporters Jean Guerrero and Claire Trageser. Okay, let's start the show. Uh-oh. I nailed it. Oh. <laughs> oh, man, she got it. Hey, everybody from NPR. I'm Elise Hugh in for Sam Sanders, who's on assignment this week. Happy weekend. Thank you. We are taping the show this week at NPR member station KPBS, as Ava mentioned, in San Diego, which means this is not only a treat for me to be in San Diego, but we get to have two amazing reporters from the station here on the show, Jean Guerrero, who covers immigration. Hey, Jean. Hey, Elise. Great to be here. And investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Hey, Claire. Hi. You all know the song you're hearing? Yes. (laughs) Two of America's Most Wanted. This is the performance used in making the Tupac hologram that performed. I was going to say something about holograms. Yeah. Gotta be hologram. So he performed America's Most Wanted as a hologram at Coachella a few years ago. Oh, wow. But this week, the hologram got a twist. The upstart presidential contender, Andrew Yang, got a hologram of himself made so that he, well, his hologram, not really him, can perform with Tupac. Oh my God, we are in the future. <laughs> well, if you look closely at that footage, you'll see that's actually not me performing with a hologram Tupac. That's a hologram of me. Um, and so, so Yang's I, big plan is to use a 3D hologram of himself on the campaign trail. On Wednesday, he gave his Yang gang, those are his supporters, a first look of this. Uh, and Yang says these two aren't going to be running as a ticket. No, uh, no, he's just, uh, he's just a hero of mine in another sense, uh, but not my running mate. So the Yang version isn't going to have Tupac with him all the time. It'll just be Yang's hologram giving his stump speech in places like Iowa so that he can be in several different places at once. I feel like this is going to work out really well for him. <laughs> <laughs> Do y'all think holograms are a good memorial to people or does it feel kind of creepy? No, it feels creepy. But you love it, Jean. I mean, <laughs> I love sci-fi and fantasy ever since I was a kid. So I kind of, yeah, I love it. I want to be a hologram one day. <laughs> Okay, to start the show as we always do, each of us here will describe some news from the week in just three words. And with the caveat, we are recording this on Friday morning, so if something breaks that's huge, please remember this caveat. Jean, you're up first. <laughs> Your three words. All right, so my three words are border crossers panic. Hmm. And I'm not talking about the asylum seekers that are actually representing the surge of arrivals at the U.S.-Mexico border. The border crossers who have been panicking over the past few days are the people who literally just live by national lives here in the San Diego-Tijuana region, um, as well as other major cross-border points along the border, like El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. Um, You have hundreds of thousands of people who cross the border every day for work, for school, for um, shopping, or to just visit family, because people have families on both sides of the border. And because President Trump has diverted hundreds of personnel from ports of entry in order to address the surge of Central Americans who he says are are crossing illegally. We've seen lane closures here in the San Diego-Tijuana region as yeah. a result of the manpower shortage. And these lane closures are leading to trucks that previously they had to wait maybe an hour, maybe two maximum. Now they're waiting up to four, five, six hours. And this is just commerce, right? The regular flow of cross-border commerce of getting things back and forth. 
Exactly. It's getting Um, tied up. Yeah. So, like, for example, here in San Diego and Tijuana, which is the busiest land border crossing in the Western Hemisphere, you see a huge aerospace and medical devices sector and other industries that literally rely on on co-production. So some parts are made in Tijuana, some parts are made in San Diego, and these things kind of go back and forth all the time, and it is essential for the economy. And those are stories that officials here are trying to get across um, to people in D.C. Do the threats of closing the border, does that have any impact? Or do people just kind of carry on as usual until, you know, it actually is closed. And they're stopped, yeah. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So that actually is having one of the biggest impacts, the mere threat of a closure. Because you see President Trump kind of going back and forth saying, I'm going to close the border. (laughs) Actually, no, I'm not. It's not necessary. Actually, yes, I'm going to close the border. And just the uncertainty related to what he's going to do is causing some people who normally cross the border for leisure, um, for example, to go experience fine dining in Tijuana because it's less expensive than here in San Diego, or Mexicans who often come shopping for brand-name clothes in San Diego that they can't find in Tijuana. Um, A lot of that activity is screeching to a halt um, Mm -hmm. because people are scared of getting stuck on the wrong side of the border. I had one guy tell me he keeps an emergency suitcase in his car now with with clothes in case case he gets stuck. But he's one of the people who, he's a U.S. citizen, but he lives in Tijuana because there's more affordable housing there. And he works in San Diego as a school teacher um, because it's a better salary. And so he just kind of crosses back and forth. He says if he got stuck in San Diego, he's not sure who would watch his dogs over in Tijuana. Um, But it would be worse if he got stuck in Mexico because then he can't get to work. Right. So, Gene, since we are seeing more traffic at ports of entry, what are the proposed solutions here? So people are, are saying that... Instead of sending personnel away from the ports of entry, which is what's currently happening, and instead of this focus on building a wall in areas where you don't have ports of entry or or walls, people are saying that actually the the focus and the investment should be at the ports of entry. So sending more personnel to the ports of entry, investing in technology at the ports of entry— because a majority of the drugs, as we know, according to the Department of Homeland Security— flow actually through the ports of entry. So a lot of the fentanyl, um, a lot of the cocaine, it actually comes through vehicles hidden inside of the tires, hidden compartments in the seats, uh, in in vehicles that are coming through the ports of entry. And and when you don't have enough staff, then it kind of just gets through. Yeah, and that's a problem that a wall wouldn't solve. Right. This is a little unrelated, but news this week that more than 100,000 migrants were apprehended at the southern border in March. That was the biggest monthly total in more than a decade. Um, Largely driven by Central Americans, right, who were trying to flee their political situations back home. Right. Are you seeing or how does this surge actually play out? What does it look like at the San Diego border? Yeah. So what happens is a lot of these asylum seekers are showing up at the port of entry here, which I, I mentioned is is the busiest one that we have in the country. And they're putting their names on a wait list for asylum that has been sort of improvised with the asylum seekers themselves. And they often wait for weeks in Tijuana to get into the United States. It used to be that asylum seekers could just come up to the border and say, I fear for my life back home. And a customs officer would say, okay, and they they would process them. They would evaluate their There's a whole procedure. 
that exactly. gets kicked in, right? But now what happens is they're told, actually, we don't have room. We have a huge backlog at the ports of entry. And so they are forced to wait. And then because of the wait, um, in many cases, because they don't feel safe waiting in Mexico, uh, which especially in Tijuana is currently seeing uh, homicides at an all-time high and migrants, um, asylum seekers are are highly a highly vulnerable group when yeah. it comes to criminal organizations. Mm-hmm. So these people end up crossing illegally because uh, in many cases they're they're desperate. And so they, they'll cross illegally and, and, and the minute that they see a border patrol agent, they they surrender. And obviously I'm not talking about everybody, but this is a majority of the cases that we're seeing is people who want to talk to a customs officer and when they find that they can't at a port of entry, they go and cross illegally. All right. Claire, you're up. Your three words. So my three words are shedding some light. <laughs> emphasis. Is some um, in asterisk? on the some. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, because California has a new law that went into effect in January that allows the public to get more access to internal police records um, than we have before. And these are in specific cases where there's been a, a shooting, a police shooting in the line of duty, use of force, mm. and then a sustained finding of sexual assault or lying in the course of an investigation. Mm. It's, you know, everything that was done um, related to that officer. So questionnaires, you know, reports, video of the incidents, audio of the incidents, all of it. Is California ahead of the curve of other states in releasing internal police records? I mean, really, California used to be so far behind before this mm. law was passed. It was one of the most restrictive states in the country. It was actually the only state where even prosecutors couldn't request officer personnel files. Jeez. I was shocked when I heard that. Yeah. I, I, just I mean, you think of California, California has so many liberal policies, but then... What was the push then? How did this law even get passed if California had such closed attitudes about... I mean, it started in the aftermath of the case of Stefan Clark, who was shot, um, an unarmed black man shot uh, outside Sacramento. Um, and there were a lot of protests about that. And so those protests were one of the tipping points, I think. Is the idea to make police officers who have maybe uh, been accused of wrongdoing or did do something wrong more accountable in, say, civil suits, right? If they are somehow acquitted of criminal charges or not found to be culpable in an internal investigation, could releasing this records make them more liable in any sort of lawsuit? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, as we're talking about shedding some light, there have been wrinkles. <laughs> um, the city of Fremont, as the bill was being discussed, it hadn't been put into into law yet. They said, let's just go ahead and destroy a bunch of these records. <laughs> it's so crazy. It's like, <laughs> just, just Well, the in law case. hasn't passed, yeah. so. <laughs> um, so there are cases like that. And then here in San Diego, the local sheriff's department, the county sheriff's department said, sure, you can have those records, but it will cost $340,000. Yeah, common. Yeah, that's a common <laughs> tactic, right? To try and keep records. Right. And their argument was, you know, we've never done this before. We're going to need software to like go through and redact all the video, right. all the audio. Man hours yeah, and exactly. Um, and, you know, local media organizations here said, well, we there's no way that we can afford three even if we split it between all of us <laughs> not really within a newsroom budget um but they went ahead and, and reversed that and said oh actually you can have it for free do you think this will mean that law enforcement agencies are like better behaved 
because they know that this information can get out there. That's the whole idea of sunlight, right? Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess time will tell. I, I was talking with a police officer who was, you know, kind of shocked about this law and saying, well, so many people are going to have their records released. But I don't know. I mean, you know, when right. you're in your job, are you really thinking about, oh, well, this might come out someday? But I mean, right. if anything, it will maybe improve the way departments respond when there is an allegation because they know that those records are going to come out. All right. Thank you, Claire. I'm going to go last. And my three words are digital afterlife. Is afterlife two words? Oh, ooh. ooh. <laughs> I'm making it into two. Our okay. digital For the purposes afterlife. of our, our digital afterlife. <laughs> to have an entree to All talk right. about how Facebook announced a new feature, uh, memorialized accounts, tributes right. this week. Um, it's in response to some awkward and downright unsettling yeah. things that were happening. Um, there's an estimated 30 million user accounts of dead people on Facebook just because by sheer numbers, right, mm-hmm. there's so many Facebook users. So people would get reminders of birthdays or friendversaries with somebody Someone who had already passed, mm-hmm. right? Or somebody who was dead would show up as a recommended friend. So yeah. now these tribute pages um, are going to be a separate page from the original user's page. So if I were to die, my page would kind of get frozen as it was. But then um, my legacy contact, so a loved one that you trust with your password, could start a memorial for you or a, a memorial account for you. Mm-hmm. And that would be a separate page where people could leave condolences, leave memories. So uh, is it, are we supposed to, everyone's supposed to set up like who your legacy contact is? Like yes. a will or something like do that? Do you have a legacy contact no, for I your social not. media account? <laughs> I don't. Right. So this whole question though is a big one because now we have digital detritus everywhere, right? Like there's so many accounts for the various social platforms that you're on. And what happens to your online persona when you die? Who's like, who are you going to trust your um, yeah. accounts to? Right. All I know is I don't want my husband to have my Instagram password because I don't like his aesthetic generally. Like, <laughs> his aesthetic. Like, I, <laughs> he chooses terrible filters. I don't Uh-oh. want him to ruin my box display you, on my profile. You'll be able to see where the change took place. Like, <laughs> no, what I have thought about because they, they've talked about how eventually they'll be able to use your social media existence to create these algorithms that will then be able to replicate your personality. So like if like your great great grandson wants to talk to you after you're dead, they'll like, I don't know, use your face, your your old Facebook Page. They'll use your social media presence to feed into your hologram. <laughs> yes, to have conversations talk. with your great great grandson. Yeah, because they could figure out how you like the way you talk and like what you're interested in, and it's kind of creepy. What I would like Facebook to get on is stop recommending you share memories with ex boyfriends. Oh, when they I say, would really like that. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Reminisce on this picture from six years ago. You're like, I'd rather not. Actually. Thank you. All right. Thanks, y'all. Time for a break. When we come back, if you thought your work week was busy, wait till you meet Jennifer. How the work of preparing tax returns is different this year under the new tax law. That's after the break. I'm Elise Hugh, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. NPR. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from VSP Individual Vision Plans, offering coverage for a low monthly cost if you don't have vision coverage through an employer. You'll get access to the nation's largest network of independent doctors and hundreds of name brand frames. Plus, you can save more than $200 a year. VSP believes you deserve to see better for life for less. Discover for yourself at needvspcoverage.com. Hey, it's Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, and I'm here to let you know that every Friday in April, we're bringing you an episode that spotlights women in comedy. You'll hear from Retta, the star of NBC's Parks and Recreation, and I'll talk to Russian doll actor Greta Lee and co-creator Leslie Headland, and many more. Listen now. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh, in for Sam Sanders, coming to you from member station KPBS in San Diego this week with two reporters from that station, Jean Guerrero, who covers immigration. Hey, Jean. Hello. And investigative reporter Claire Trageser. Hey, Claire. Hi. It is time for a segment we call Long Distance, where we talk to a listener about the news in their neck of the woods. So y'all know what Monday is, right? Got this uh, Tax it day. is tax. Day. Yes, <laughs> You're I right already got it. mine done though. What about you? You got your taxes done? Um, we're almost done. <laughs> <laughs> almost there. A lot of people are like you, and they're rushing to get their taxes done this weekend. And in New York City, more than 250 of them are getting help from our listener Jennifer Ambler. She is a tax prep specialist there, and she works with a lot of clients who are actors and performers in New York. People who, like more and more Americans, work in the gig economy. They're taking jobs as Lyft drivers or making things on Etsy. Exactly. And their taxes are then way more complicated. Complicated. (laughs) Exactly. So we called up Jennifer to talk about how the new tax law has changed her work and her very busy week. So, Jennifer, this week is your Super Bowl. It really is. (laughs) What have your hours been like? I see clients for about eight hours a day, and then I come home and, and work for another four hours on just returns that have been emailed to me. And how are your clients? Because if they're rushing in in these final days, then are they feeling pretty frenzied and harried too? Yeah, this is, so I'm already full completely. So now everyone, you know, I, now this is the time where I get frenzied emails and I'm like, sorry, extension. (laughs) Oh, okay. So now for anybody that you hear from sort of at the last minute now, it's just, all right, file an extension. That's what I'm going to do for you. Pretty much. Yeah. I already have appointments. I take a week off, and then I already have people signing up for appointments April 22nd. And I understand you do a lot of tax work for people in the world of the performing arts, theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What makes their taxes different? Well, prior to uh, the new law, the thing about acting is there's a lot of expenses. You know, a lot of actors are paying an agent 10%, sometimes an agent and a manager 10% mm. each. Uh, we have union dues voice lessons and acting classes and new headshots. And it's, it's an incredibly cost-intensive profession to, you know, you have to invest a lot of money, even if you're successful in it. Uh, and so actors used to, you know, are pretty well used to deducting, you know, a quarter to a third of their income in expenses wow. on their taxes. And but that all went was, away. <laughs> yeah, there was then a big Republican-led tax overhaul which made the standard deduction bigger, right? Mm -hmm, Right. So then what happened for you? So it's like they clipped my wings. I can't do anything (laughs) for people. I just have a lot of clients who 
you know, have $20,000 of deductions and, and can't take them anymore. And so their refunds are much smaller. And uh, I, I looked and I, I've only had nine people itemized this entire year where that used to be a good half of my clients. Mm. I, you know, I basically tell everyone, I don't want to know about your charity. It's not going to matter. Hmm. I don't know if that'll affect anybody, but like, I'm giving more political donations now because I don't get a charitable deduction. So wow, it's affecting the way like, you give. Yeah, because I used to give to the ACLU's like charitable arm, and now I was like, well, it doesn't matter. So I just gave the to the ACLU in general, which isn't deductible. Is there a bright side to fewer itemized deductions, though, because it could essentially it's make simpler? Preparing taxes simpler, right? I mean, there's a big hassle mm-hmm. in tax prep every year. So, does this simplify the process for Americans? For most Americans, probably. For me, no, because I still have to do the itemized deductions on the state for my clients if they have enough. But now I have to keep in my brain the differences between the new federal law and what the states are still allowing. And wow. so, it's actually almost just as annoying <laughs> for me. <laughs> So I understand a little bit about how this has changed what you're doing and your clients, but how has the tax overhaul changed tax prep in the broader sense, more generally? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess this year, the general sense I get from talking to other tax pros is that a lot of clients are disappointed. Hmm. You know, they're not being able to deduct as much. Everything's just kind of a little uncertain. Um, some parts of the new law are kind of vague and we're still figuring them out. Yeah, it was. I remember when they were passing it, it happened so quickly, right? Right. Yeah. So there's there's a particular deduction called the Qualified Business Income Deduction or the QBI. And the IRS changed, like they issued a final regulation on how that would be calculated on February 28th. And it was wow. different than how we'd been calculating it before. So oh half goodness. the clients got done one way and half the clients got done another way. <laughs> One thing we have heard, though, is that a lot of folks have been reporting or talking to the media about how they were expecting bigger refunds and then got smaller ones. But in Uh some cases, that's because they were taking home more money throughout the year, right? But it still seems to disappoint people. Can you talk a little bit about the psychology of all this? Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) I love my clients, but very few of them understand the American tax system at all. And a lot of people equate refunds with how much tax they paid. They just really look forward to a nice big refund, no matter how many times I tell them that a refund is just getting back money that you were (laughs) supposed to have in the first place. But our brains seem to receive the big chunk as some sort of gift, even though it's just us getting our own money back. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. People are, oh, I mean, who wouldn't be excited? It's the best part of my day when I get to tell someone, hey, you're getting $2,000. It's like they've won the lottery. (laughs) Of your own money that the government's been holding for you. And there's also, you know, loss aversion. There's nothing worse than me telling someone, I'm sorry, you owe $2,000 and having them be like, oh my God. Like, you know, some people just don't want to be told they owe. It's not, you know, it's not even about the refund. Well, Jennifer, we usually ask callers at the end of the segment what they're doing for fun this weekend. Are you doing anything for fun this weekend? <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have clients back to back to back this weekend. I will every every April 15th, which is Monday, so not the weekend. But I have a tradition with a friend where we go to a bar and have a drink together 
while I, I have to bring my laptop because I'm usually still last oh minute checking on things. But once I've filed everyone's extension and I feel like 90% done, we go out and get a drink. So I am very much looking forward to that on Monday. And it sounds like you deserve it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And good luck to you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Jennifer Ambler, a tax prep specialist in Manhattan. I'm Elise Hugh here with reporters Jean Guerrero and Claire Tregesser. Have you heard this from people that you know, this refund thing, that they're not getting refunds as big yes. as they were? Yes. When we got our taxes done, our, our woman said people are leaving in tears. Oh, no. Like people just come to kind of count on it. Oh, with my <laughs> refund this year. And because it feels like such a mystery, you, you don't really know. You're It's like a, playing the lottery, but you expect something. Right. All right. Time for a break. When we come back, everyone's favorite game, Who Said That? I'm Elise Hu, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, and on the latest episode of How I Built This, how Alice Waters pioneered the farm-to-table movement and revolutionized American cuisine along the way. Check it out on How I Built This from NPR. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh, in for Sam Sanders. We're recording the show at NPR member station KPBS in San Diego this week, and our guests are two talented reporters from that station, Jean Guerrero, who covers immigration. Hey, Jean. Hello, Elise. And investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Hey, Claire. Hi. Now it's time for my favorite game. All right. Who said that? Oh, my God. I'm going to get I've been no studying. <laughs> really? No. <laughs> I don't know what I would study. <laughs> Here's how it works. I share a quote from the week. Y'all have to guess who said that, or at least the news story that it refers to. Jean is putting her, she's rubbing her temples right now. She is putting her thinking cap on. She's channeling the news of the week. You don't get to call a friend. Oh, God. But the winner gets, wait for it, nothing. You get nothing. Ready? Okay, first quote. I feel like this one, I think you're going to get it. All right, here we go. If you write a best-selling book, you can be a millionaire, too. (laughs) Uh, President Trump? (laughs) No, but you're in the right realm. Politics, politics. Um, Someone who might be releasing his tax returns. So that wouldn't be President Trump. If you write a best-selling... Oh, Herman Cain. Close. (laughs) Not not really close, actually, politically at all. Um, The answer is Bernie Sanders. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because he, this purported man of the people, this populist, is now a millionaire because of he his wrote, best-selling book. Oh, oh my gosh. I, I have not read it. That's clearly, all I'll say. <laughs> clearly, you don't have Bernie Sanders' book on your Kindle. Oh, zero man. to zero. You know what? This means both of y'all have a chance. <laughs> both See, of y'all can catch up. You set it up. There can, I know. I shouldn't have set that up. It's so easy, right? <laughs> but we'll get the next okay, one. Okay. So I'm you ready. don't have to guess the actual person. You can just know the news story. Next quote. No one of us could have done it alone. 
It came together because of lots of different people from many backgrounds. Is this about the black hole? Yes! That was 29-year-old MIT grad Katie Bauman, who became the toast of social media as one of the scientists behind the first ever image of a black hole that came out this week. Y'all saw it? Yes. And that was very cool to read about her. Yeah, Yeah. because, you know, this was a collaboration of more than 200 scientists across 20 countries, but it was Katie's Ph.D. research that played a big part of the work. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, and she's a woman scientist. Yeah, I love the look on her face um, in that picture that I saw going around Twitter. Just so excited about it. Yeah, yeah. She's become like a real—people are going to meme her, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) So. All right. (laughs) One to nothing. One to nothing. This is your chance to win absolutely nothing. Final quote. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm looking for most of the time. Can I just get some strawberry? This sounds like it's about frozen yogurt. <laughs> you are right. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? Holy How did cow. You? Answer is always frozen yogurt. When in doubt, frozen yogurt. <laughs> that was Sarah Gray, a school teacher from Texas, <laughs> speaking to the Wall Street Journal about yogurt. What? Not frozen yogurt, but you were close oh, enough, and I was okay. so excited to give you the point. <laughs> the paper reported this week that yogurt sales have fallen in each of the past two years. What? And apparently the reason why is there's too many options. <laughs> Oh, right. When you, yeah. It's like paradox of choice. And so then you're like, nothing. I just choose nothing. (laughs) Yes. The General Mills chief executive, Jeff Harmoning, said in an interview that food producers had made the category too confusing. His quote, (laughs) oh my God. The shelf has become more difficult to shop. They need samples, like when you get frozen yogurt, but at the grocery store, you can just try. Try (laughs) the yogurts. Just stand there at your grocery store trying, like, (laughs) Claire. Great first outing at this game. Congratulations. Good game. (laughs) Now it's time to end the show. As we do every week, we ask listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage them to brag. Let's take a listen. This is Lily from Cincinnati. And the best part of my week was getting to see pictures of my son, Jacob, who's just starting recruit camp uh, for the Marines. And I just missed my... 18-year-old, and I just hope he's doing great. But that was the best part of my week. And to share it with you, I really appreciate it. This is Sarah from Boston. The best part of my week is that I sang karaoke for the first time. The best part of my week was getting to spend my 30th birthday weekend in Phnom Penh with my boyfriend. My name is Kira, and the best part that happened of my week is that I lost my first tooth. I have been awarded the Fulbright Scholarship to do my PhD in education. I landed a great new job after being unemployed for two months. Hi, it's Stason. And who are you? Ada. And the best part of our week was... Ice cream. Our favorite ice cream shop has finally opened for the season. The best thing that happened this week is that our son sent in his acceptance letter after getting an offer from his dream high school. And I have never heard a kid so excited to start school. The best part of my week is that my wonderful wife, Kate, picked the grad school she'll be going to next year to study math. The best thing that happened to me this week is finishing up at least one of the five papers I have due. I graduate from law school on May 11th. I'm 52 years old. It's been a lifelong dream, and it's actually happening. This is Emily from Indiana. The best thing that happened to me this week is I surprised my 68-year-old mother on my parents' wedding anniversary. 
My dad passed away about a year and a half ago, and I surprised my mom and took her on a date to the restaurant that my parents went on for their first date and would often go to on their anniversary. She was not expecting me to pick her up for dinner that night because I live out of town. I hope you had a great week, too. Thanks for the show. Thanks. Thank you. Say bye. 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 <laughs> Thanks so much to all the listeners you heard there. Lily, Sarah, John, Kira, Rihanna, Robert, Stason, and Ada, Dana, Aaron, Chris, and Emily. Listeners, thank you for your submissions for this segment. We do hear them all, even though we can't play them all. Thanks for sharing. And if you want to hear your best thing in the show next week, just record yourself and share it with us at any time. Email your audio file to samsanders at npr.org. That's samsanders at npr.org. That's a wrap for this week. Going out on Tupac, America's Most Wanted. This might be the first time we've had Tupac on this show, so I really feel privileged. <laughs> Thank you so much to my guests this week here in San Diego, KPBS reporters Claire Tregesser and Jean Guerrero. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Jean. Thank Thanks you. And we should mention you heard Jean talking about life on the border. She is the author of a book about her own life called Crux a cross-border memoir. And also a big thank you to engineers Kurt Conan and Emily Jankowski and to Lisa Jane Morissette, Joe Guerin, and Suzanne Marmion here at KPBS. It's Been a Minute was produced this week by Brent Bachman, Anjali Sastry, our editors are Alex McCall and Jordana Hochman. Steve Nelson is our director of programming and the senior vice president of programming at NPR is Anya Grunman. Listeners, Sam is back on Tuesday for a conversation with writer Adam Serwer of The Atlantic about race and politics and a part of American history you might not know. I don't know it, so I can't wait to hear it. Uh, it's in your podcast feed next Tuesday. I am Elise Hugh, and thanks for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I nailed it.